0: to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. I'm sure a lot of you guys
1: remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart & Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over six thousand captains and trips to choose from planning your next one just got a whole lot easier download the fishing booker app on the google play or app store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today From Mediator's World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana, this is Cal's Weekend Review presented by Steel. Steel products are available only at authorized dealers. For more, go to steeldealers.com. Now, here's your host, Ryan Cal Callahan.
0: A new study published by researchers at Virginia Tech has found that the soap you use can determine whether or not you're attractive to mosquitoes. You might assume that clean humans are less attractive to the tiny flying vampires than unwashed folks, but that's not necessarily true. In fact, the study found that some brands of soap actually make people more likely to get bitten. Here's how one of the researchers put it. The fact that we are taking those flowery, fruity smells and putting them on our bodies means that now the same object smells like a flower and a person at the same time, It would be like wrapping up and smelling something that was like both coffee and muffins. Very appealing. You know, if you're a coffee and muffin type. Mosquitoes are attracted to flowery smells because when they're not ruining your hike by sucking your blood, they're supplementing their sugar intake with plant nectars. Like all good scientists, the study's authors didn't offer a simple answer. Floral soaps are probably a bad idea, but it depends on how the soap interacts with your unique odor. Washing with Dove, Dial, and Simple Truth soap increased the attractiveness of some, but not all. By contrast, washing with native brand soap tended to repel mosquitoes, but that was not always the case. I think the takeaway is that if you're one of those people who attract mosquitoes from the next county, you may want to switch soaps. It may not help, but you may as well give it a shot. This week, Utahns have got to know what they're shooting at. Wolves, spiders, legislation, and so much more. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week was spent on the road. Hunting turkeys in the early morning light, then plugging into the internet by midday. Remote work and hunting out of the old black series, just the dogs and I. The girlfriend's dog is a border collie named Trace Atkins. He is the one I describe as the referee. Not just because he has the merle black and white coloration, but because he is not invested in hunting. He loves going out, but he couldn't care less about the outcome. Just wants a good game. And if he's doing his job right, you won't even know he's there. Whereas Snort, even when I position her on the opposite side of a ponderosa pine, will shake so violently with anticipation that it feels like you're trying to shoot a tom while on one of those vibrating beds you see on old TV shows and seedy motel rooms. Anyway, I would not recommend hunting turkeys with dogs. It makes things immensely more complicated and challenging. But, you know, it's still time with the dogs, so it's awesome. I killed zero turkeys, by the way. Need to expand my search as I was continually hunting very promising areas, but never located anything other than hands on public ground. And when I returned to those spots in the wee hours of the early morning or late evening, I never did hear a gobble. The rivers are pumping with snowmelt, mushrooms are popping out of the thatched pine duff on the hillsides, and Canadian wildfire smoke is in the air. Springtime in Montana, and a little bit of turkey time left. Moving on to the legislative desk. Sunday hunting is once again dead in the Maine legislature. The Committee on Inland Fisheries and Wildlife voted last week to reject four bills that would have afforded some hunters the opportunity to pursue game on Sundays. One of the bills, for example, would have only allowed miners to hunt on private land. Another would have given property owners the ability to hunt their own land on Sunday, while a different bill would have allowed archery hunting, but not rifle hunting, on the Lord's Day. But those compromises weren't enough to satisfy the folks in the state legislature. Committee chair David LaFontaine said, quote, I feel that if we opened up any hunting on Sunday, then the deluge next year of Sunday hunting bills will be overwhelming. It's weird how they're not just considering just making it legal to hunt on Sunday. Done deal. End of story. Maine and Massachusetts are the only states that do not allow some form of Sunday hunting. On the other end of the spectrum... New regulations are taking effect in South Carolina that will allow Sunday hunting on state land. On May 26, 2023, Sunday hunting will be permitted on eight wildlife management areas and two national forests from October 15 to January 31. Prior to this regulation change, South Carolina was the only southern state with an outright ban on Sunday hunting on public lands. Utah's Division of Wildlife Resources is proposing a rule that would prohibit killing trumpeter swans during the state's tundra swan hunting season. Trumpeter swans are a protected species, but Utah did not penalize hunters for killing them because they look so much like the slightly smaller tundra swan. The state only allows 20 trumpeter swans to be killed before shutting down the entire fall hunting season, but in each of the last four years, the fall swan season has ended early and more than 20 trumpeters have been killed. Hunting tundra swans will still be allowed under the proposed rule, but hunters will have to be more careful about avoiding trumpeters. Under the new policy, killing a trumpeter, deliberately or not, will be considered poaching, and the bird will be seized. If you'd like to weigh in, the Utah DWR is accepting comments on its website. We'll post a link at themeateater.com forward slash cal. The Kansas Wildlife and Parks Commission voted last month to do away with the fall turkey season and make reductions to the spring season. Along with canceling the fall season for 2023, the spring bag limits in Unit 1 and Unit 2 have been reduced to one turkey only. Permits in Unit 4 will no longer be valid in adjacent units, and non-resident permit quotas are established in each hunting unit. The move comes as turkey populations have shrunk in many states and biologists have struggled to come up with a definitive reason why. Staying in Kansas, the Wildlife and Parks Commission is proposing a new regulation to decrease pressure from non-resident waterfowl hunters. The proposal would limit non-resident hunting on department lands and waters to Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday through the current Kansas season structure. This would also carry over to U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and other federal lands. Resident waterfowl hunters have been reporting decreased satisfaction, and commissioners believe non-residents are partially to blame. They report that they are seeing more large groups of non-residents stay for longer periods of time, and they're hoping these new restrictions will give residents less competition. In Nevada, the state Senate passed a bill that would designate the wild Mustang as the official state horse. This may not sound controversial, but a host of outdoor and conservation groups, including Ducks Unlimited and the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, have come out in opposition to this bill. They point out that the wild mustangs and burros are not native to the continent, much less the state, and have degraded rangeland and damaged ecological health. They sent a letter to Assemblywoman Selena Torres that says, in part, in our view, offering greater legitimacy to the inhumane overpopulation of feral horses on the landscape would be detrimental to our diligently managed wildlife and natural resources, as well as to the horses themselves. The bill, SB 90, is currently before the Assembly Committee on Government Affairs. You can contact www.leg.state.nv.us, where you can find your legislator, and contact the Assemblywoman. Moving from the state to the federal level, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley has joined forces with Democrat Senator Cory Booker to introduce the Conservation Reserve Program Reform Act. This bill would prioritize enrolling marginal farmland in CRP rather than prime farmland. Proponents say this change would generate more durable wildlife and environmental benefits while reducing competition for productive farmland between the U.S. Department of Agriculture and Farmers. We've covered the CRP, which stands for Conservation Reserve Program, on this program before. It's a federal land conservation initiative that compensates farmers with an annual lease payment in exchange for removing land from agricultural production for a fixed period of time. These new reforms would incentivize farmers to enroll marginal farmland that probably wouldn't be good for crops, but would still make excellent grassland habitat. If you know anything about politics, you know that if Chuck Grassley and Cory Booker can agree on a policy, it can't be that bad. In this case, the CRP Reform Act is also supported by groups like Pheasants Forever, TRCP, and Ducks Unlimited. Get on the phone with your U.S. representative and senators and let them know that you want the CRP Reform Act included in this year's farm bill. Last one for you. At the beginning of April, the Bureau of Land Management proposed a new rule that would add conservation to the list of uses acceptable under the agency's multi-use mandate. Basically, it would allow conservation groups and businesses to lease land for conservation in the same way that mining or cattle companies lease the land right now. The proposal has stirred quite a bit of controversy, including a bill in Congress that would block the rule and opposition from a group of U.S. Senators. The agency has also received over 30,000 comments online. Now, concerned citizens can take their engagement a step further by attending one of five meetings happening across the country. Two of the meetings will be virtual, one of which was already held on May 15. The other virtual meeting will take place June 5th. Then, there will be meetings in Denver, Albuquerque, and Reno on May 25, May 30, and June 1, respectively. If you'd like to weigh in on this fundamental change to how the BLM manages our public land, try to attend one of these meetings. I'm still trying to get more information on this. Thank you to everybody who wrote in. Right now, I think this is great as long as there can be overlapping permitting. For example, if you are a public land hunting outfitter, let's just say, you can operate on Bureau of Land Management ground that is held under, let's say, like a grazing lease already, okay? So even though it's leased by somebody who's grazing that ground, you can lease it as an outfitter to guide clients out there to kill, you know, deer, elk, antelope, birds, whatever. So whatever your state allows. If these conservation leases would prohibit what is now like historical use From other businesses, logging, grazing, mining, then that's just gonna cause a bunch of controversy. Obviously, if there's a tract out there that needs to be rested because it has already been mined and reclaimed, then that would be a great use of like an exclusive conservation lease. And obviously, if these conservation leases have to allow public access and public hunting, then, you know my ears would be much more open. Again, I'm still trying to find the ins and outs of this stuff and I'll get back to you with a full report. Sound cool? Cool. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about Family Finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither. Just like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Listen, one of the few things expected of you in life is to not let other people pick up after you. That's why I have life insurance, to make sure... My stuff is taken care of, even when I'm gone. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under ten minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com/cal. That's meetfabric.com/cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com/cal. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions.
1: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER.
0: For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it. And don't try it without on X. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt and find more birds this spring. Moving on to that uh, funky panhandle state, Idaho. Idaho has finalized a plan to reduce the wolf population in the state by as many as 700 wolves. You may remember back in 2021 when the state legislature passed a bill to liberalize wolf hunting and trapping in an effort to reduce the population, so they say. Those policies, which I criticized as an overreach by the state legislature, failed to achieve the desired result, no big surprise. The wolf population has remained stable since the law was passed, and only a few hunters use the expanded means of take. At the same time, The Idaho Department of Fish and Game has been developing a plan to return the wolf population to the original management goal. When the species was delisted in the Northern Rockies in 2011, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service set Idaho's population goal around 500 wolves. Current surveys have determined that there are about 1,200 wolves in the state, so the management plan is designed to reduce that population by about 700 individuals. But that's easier said than done. In 2021, hunters and trappers harvested 411 wolves. That's enough to keep the population stable, but not enough to shrink it. In order to get the population down to 500 by 2028, Idaho Fish and Game estimates they'll need to harvest an additional 100 wolves every year over the next six years. The plan outlines three primary ways to increase the wolf take. First, Idaho Fishing Game will try to expand the number of wolf hunters in the state by launching a program that reimburses successful wolf hunters for hunt-related expenditures. It doesn't name specific expenditures, but presumably those would include things like the cost of gas, food, lodging, and tags. Note that the reimbursement program would only be for successful wolf hunters, which should encourage folks to hunt harder and longer. Second, The plan calls for an aggressive, lethal response to livestock depredation. Rather than take out one or two wolves that are suspected of killing livestock, the plan allows wildlife managers to take out entire packs. This will only be done while the wolf population remains above goal, and poison will not be used. Finally, if all else fails... The plan allows Idaho Fish and Game to, quote, implement area-specific predation management plans and agency control actions that balance effectiveness with cost efficiency. These actions will be focused on areas where wolves are having unacceptable impacts on ungulate populations or livestock, or where wolves become established outside of suitable habitat. The plan was just approved last week, and I'm sure it won't take long for our friends at the Center for Biological Diversity to announce a lawsuit. If you want more details, you can check out the article by Eli Fournier at TheMeatEater.com. Moving on to the spider desk. If you live in the southeastern U.S., you may have come across a large invasive arachnid called the Joro spider. How they've managed to be so successful in North America is still up for debate, but a new study suggests that an unexpected superpower may keep them out of harm's way. Joro spiders are native to Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and China, but they hitched a ride on a shipping container at some point in the last 20 years and were first documented in the U.S. in Georgia in 2013. Since then, the species has spread prolifically across the southeast, and some research suggests that they could spread up the eastern seaboard. There are large spiders that can be up to three inches across with their legs spread. They have a yellow body and alternating yellow and black bars on their legs, and you may have seen them with webs stretched between power lines, stoplights, or gas station pumps. You might assume that a large, highly invasive spider is aggressive. To outcompete compete other spiders, they probably throw their weight around a little. They aren't afraid to get rough and tough at the local bar, so to speak. Actually, the opposite is true. Rather than being aggressive, a new study from the University of Georgia found that Joro spiders may be the shyest spider ever documented. By shy, I don't mean they're afraid of social settings or insecure about a new haircut. Researchers compared more than 450 spiders' responses to a brief and harmless disturbance across 10 different species. Researchers used a turkey baster to briefly blow two puffs of air on each spider. While most spiders froze for less than a minute before resuming their normal activities, the Joro spiders remained motionless for more than an hour. They basically shut down and waited for the disturbance to go away. Like, for real. How this crippling shyness has helped them spread so rapidly is still a mystery, but scientists have some theories. One is that it allows them to live where other spiders can't, like white tailed deer and raccoons. Joro spiders do well around human infrastructure. They frequently build their webs on telephone poles or stoplights, and researchers think their shyness helps them cope with the barrage of noise, vibrations, and visual stimuli they encounter in urban settings. Their prolonged freeze response could help the spiders conserve energy rather than constantly stopping and starting like other spiders do. This theory also suggests that spiders aren't displacing other native species. They're spreading because they have a high reproductive capability and can occupy areas other spiders don't. To return to our spider bar, they're like the guy who's happy to drink alone rather than the guy looking for a fight on the dance floor. Tortured metaphors aside, Joros aren't a danger to pets or humans. They may look scary, but they don't bite unless cornered, and their fangs aren't long enough to puncture your skin. So, you know, quit whining about it. No, I'm sure they're doing some sort of damage just by taking food away from other spiders. Um, Hopefully they just, you know, focus on ticks and mosquitoes. Moving on to the mining desk. A conservation group working to stop a gold mine along the border of Yellowstone National Park that's right. Yellowstone, the national park, not the TV series, announced last week it plans to buy out the proposed mine for $6.25 The Greater Yellowstone Coalition says it's already raised $3.9 and has entered into a tentative agreement with the Crevice Mining Company to purchase the mine, but it needs another $2 million to finalize the agreement by October 1, 2023. If successful, the effort would extinguish the last real and significant mining threat on the border of Yellowstone National Park forever, the coalition said in a statement. The group is seeking to purchase the mineral rights, leases, and claims to 1,368 acres of land on Crevice Mountain, which rises above the Yellowstone River in the town of Gardner, Montana. The mine is outside the border of Yellowstone Park, but the group argues that the mine and associated roads and infrastructure would damage the park's ecosystem. Yellowstone National Park Superintendent, Cam Shawley, said in a statement that 100 years ago, a mining project north of the park left, quote, a legacy of toxic waste severely contaminating the Soda Butte Creek, making it the most polluted stream entering Yellowstone National Park. Along with fears of similar contamination, the Greater Yellowstone Coalition worries about wildlife within the proposed mine site itself. This area provides habitat for grizzly bears and also serves as a migration corridor for the park's wildlife, including elk, mule deer, bighorn sheep, and bison. And, of course, the group appeals to Yellowstone tourists who don't want to see a mine during their excursion into the wilderness. I'd put wilderness there in quotes and remind you that uh, it's a lowercase w, not a capital. The Coalition writes, Imagine driving through the northern entrance of Yellowstone National Park, and instead of an expansive landscape dotted with wildlife before you, there is an industrial mine site full of heavy equipment and floodlights scarring the mountainside above. Their success will depend on their ability to raise money. Sometimes that's the harsh reality of conservation. If you have enough dough, you can save a lot of land. If you'd like to drop a few bucks into the hat, visit greateryellowstone.org. Moving on to the cougar desk. Colorado Parks and Wildlife euthanized a mountain lion last week after it attacked an 11-year-old girl who was checking her family's chicken coop. The cat swatted at the girl's face and left a puncture wound on her cheek, but fortunately did not do any additional damage. The cat was euthanized per the department's policy on human-animal attacks. The girl had been checking her chickens on the evening of May 11 when she noticed a dead chicken on the ground outside the coop. When she opened the door, she was hit with a paw belonging to a 30-pound sub-adult female mountain lion. The cat swatted at her face, but did not pursue her when she ran away. Wildlife officials believe the cat was acting in self-defense rather than in a predatory manner, but they still killed it when they arrived and found the animal in the coop. The cat's remains were sent to a lab to test for rabies, bird flu, or some other infection that may have influenced its behavior. You may recall another recent incident of a cougar in Colorado that swatted at a man's head while he was soaking in a hot tub. Colorado Parks and Wildlife stressed that these incidents are not related and cougar attacks remain extremely rare. In fact, there have only been 28 cougar attacks in Colorado since 1990, three of which were fatal. If you ever find yourself face to face with North America's largest feline, don't run. You'll trigger its prey drive. Instead, back away slowly and speak in a deep, clear voice. If that doesn't work, make as much noise as you can and look as big as you can. If the cat actually charges, fight like hell. You see, I made it through an entire cougar story without, you know, making the joke that I usually do. People can change. I know I'm jumping around on you here a little bit, but I'm going to bring up my own state's Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks. They've been having some issues drawing tags, which is something many of us really, really look forward to out of a perverse sense of, uh, I don't know, like uh, you like to get kicked in the face, right? It's like uh, waiting for Christmas morning, there's packages under the tree, but when you open yours up, it's like uh, a stink bomb or something every year because you don't draw anything. But you really look forward to the idea that you as a good conservationist will eventually draw something. Well, I'm going to jump around here. If you recall a few years back, the state of Idaho overdrew on very important tags like bighorn sheep. And people within the Department of Fish and Game caught the error, but they had to call individuals back and say, hey, unfortunately, we didn't stop the drawing in time, so the tag that you drew actually goes back into the pot. You did not draw. We're very sorry. It was an egg-on-the-face moment. But they were able to walk that back. Well, here in the state of Montana, for reasons unexplained, they managed to overdraw on ewe bighorn sheep tags, male bighorn sheep tags, and bull moose tags. However, the only tags that they're walking back, or attempting to anyway, are the ewe bighorn sheep tags, which are way easier to draw. Yes, taking ewes out of the population have long-term population effects that taking rams out of the population don't have, but fewer people put in for them, they're easier to get. And the state of Montana, in its wisdom, has decided to not rescind the highly coveted ram-bighorn-sheep tags. They have also decided to not rescind the overdrawn and highly coveted bull moose tags. I'm going to do some more digging on this one. But this is coming off of a very interesting year last year where people who put in four tags that would be like mathematically impossible to draw on their second draw received those tags. When Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks was asked about the possibility that there was a mistake, they denied that there was, and only recently came out and said, oh, you know what, we messed that up. And it irks me, ladies and gentlemen. It just does. A, when you make a mistake, you admit to that mistake. B, you better have a darn good reason as to why you don't tell people that that bighorn sheep tag that they drew is actually not theirs. have a reason as to why this fits into the long-term management plan for those areas. And I need to remind you, unlike the state of Idaho, which is the most recent example I have of something like this happening, in Montana, you have to wait after you've successfully harvested a bighorn sheep, but then your name can go back in the pot. Whereas, in the state of Idaho, if you successfully harvest a bighorn sheep, a bull moose or a mountain goat and aren't, you know, extremely wealthy to the point where you can purchase an auction tag, which I'm highly opposed to, if you can't tell, you're done. It's a once-in-a-lifetime tag. Whereas here, we have the same scenario. The state has overdrawn a highly coveted, publicly owned resource. They aren't rescinding those tags. And these people will have the opportunity to apply again. Will their odds in seven years, the waiting period when it is up, be good? Will they be likely to draw another tag? No. But will it hurt my draw tag odds? Yes. So, you know, just whining to all of you. I'll uh, track down the info on this, and we'll see, you know, what the state has to say. Oh, and that's why you don't just speak off the cuff. This is an addendum to what I just recorded. After speaking with Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, I do have some clarifications to make. All right, so, in regards to my statements on antelope, just disregard that, because none of that is proven. That's, like, good old-fashioned tag-draw weirdness that lays out there in conspiracy land. I am guilty of it. I admit it. Run me up the flagpole. In regards to the big game draw tags, the coveted moose and sheep tags that I spoke of, this is apparently what happened. There is a database that informs regulations where updated population information, like sustainable harvest, is inputted. Then there is the tag-draw database. Information from the regulation database has got to be transferred into the tag-draw database. That information is subject to, you know, humans. And there was a mistake. After deliberation with the biologist or biologists, it was found that these populations could sustain the additional harvest and specifically the additional mail harvest. And that's why these individuals who drew the tags were allowed to keep the tags. All right? That's the official rule. If that's not satisfying to you, I get it. I really, really do. Now, the other point that I got confused on, there was a uh, very Montana-specific article, but any state that deals with like bonus points and preference points, something that I wholeheartedly despise, there's an article that came out in the Billings Gazette which turns out some great conservation, state conservation news here in Montana, regarding a bonus point situation where the state was approached saying that there was an issue with bonus points, and that issue was being that people were issued too many bonus points. The state said, no, that's not the case. But then when folks dug in, it was in fact the case, and um, it all just kind of mountains up to... What the heck is going on? Right? We've been invested in these coveted tag draws since we were 12 years old. And it's just not something that we like to see messed with. The reality is that we're talking about like infinitesimal, really insignificant mathematical dividends here that would influence my ability to draw a tag. And as I spoke with FWP and told you earlier on this same podcast, you know, what irks me is when you factor in my bad luck, that after these people kill their mooses and sheeps, they're going to be back in the same tag draw competing with me in seven years, right? So it's just me. I'm crying to you. Anyway, uh, everyone, please thank Phil for inserting this at the end of a very long day. Please write in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's Ask Hal at TheMeatEater.com. And let me know what's going on in your neck of the woods. You know, I appreciate it. Also, I uh, didn't have a, uh, a stump, you know, anything to uh, put underneath the jack on the old camper this week. So I took out a clean, quiet, battery-operated steel chainsaw, zipped up a log sitting on the side of the road, and made myself a little jack stand. If you want that type of convenience, check out www.steeldealers.com and find a local knowledgeable steel dealer near you going to get you set up with what you need, and they won't try to send you home with what you don't. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week.
1: I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill.
0: at seafoamworks.com to learn more.